Spring turkey season is upon us, and don't be caught out in the woods without having Onyx Hunt on your phone. One feature Onyx has that is often overlooked for turkey hunting is their recent imagery filter with their elite memberships. This imagery is updated week to week, and it comes in extremely handy, especially when you're trying to find these gobble zones where these turkeys will go out in a high spot on a fresh clear cut and strut around all day long. Actually, I was just looking at on Onyx where, where the timber company just came into Andrew's club and did a very small clear cut along this creek, and I can see the high spots on the topographical map, but also I can see exactly where they mulch, and those are going to be hot spots for finding gobblers, especially mid-morning after they get off their hens, getting up on these little high spots in this fresh, small clear cut along the creek and strutting and gobbling all day long. If you want to give Onyx a try, you can actually download it for free, try it for seven days, and if you decide to purchase, you can use the promo code SOUTHERN and save on your premium and elite memberships. So go into this turkey season, know where you stand with Onyx. Well, guys, we have some exciting news for you from Vortex about their brand new eyewear, their Banshee and Jackal sunglasses. Me and Andrew have had these for a few weeks now, right before the release, and we've been extremely impressed. They're awesome glasses, guys. And listen, if you're needing some new sunglasses, not only do they have the VIP warranty, but they're tough as crap, guys. Uh, Scratch-resistant eyewear, uh, it's extremely important. And also, they have safety features as well. So when you're out shooting at the range, again, these are rated glasses, so you are going to be more than protected when you're at the range. But they also look fantastic when you're out around town. So right now, Vortex has some special pricing on their website, which is vortexoptics.com for the new eyewear. But also, if you use the code SOUTHERN20, you get to save even more on this special pricing for right now at vortexoptics.com. Again, check out the new eyewear from vortexoptics.com and use the promo code SOUTHERN20 to save on their brand new eyewear. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. Make sure you like and subscribe to the podcast. You can check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. If you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash the Southern Outdoorsman. Now let's get to the episode. Presented by Hunting Exchange, a marketplace for serious hunters by serious hunters. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. We're really excited to be coming to y'all today with one of my favorite people in the hunting industry, uh, one of my favorite companies in the hunting industry. We got Adam Keith of Land and Legacy on here. Adam, how are you doing? I'm doing great, man. Wow, look at that. I, I appreciate the, the call out there. It's being very, very honored. Hey, dude, I mean, right off the bat, I, I love what you guys do. I think y'all have a great message. Uh, I think that y'all are great educators, and I always learn a lot 
whenever I consume any of y'all's content, like any of the like 8,000 podcasts y'all put out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. You know, we laugh because people are like, aren't you going to run out of content? I'm like, you have no idea how much we think about land management, habitat management, wildlife management. Like it is on our brains more than it should be uh, as, as both family men probably think about it too much. But, you know, that's why we can do two podcasts a week. Hey, it, it really is incredible the amount of content y'all put out, and, and it's a tremendous resource. And we'll we'll uh, plug it at the end a little bit more, and of course it'll be in the description. But we also got the ginger bow hunter over here. Oh, oh, so I'm back to a bow hunter now? Yeah, you're back to the bow hunter. <laughs> I, I was trying to come up with something about how rabbit just, slayer. Come on. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah woodcock get, slayer, rabbit slayer. Just shaved his head. Yeah, it's just, like old skinhead yeah, now. No, most <laughs> of it. He <laughs> shaved most of it. He missed a couple spots. I, I'm, try, I'm trying to look like Michael Pike here. So anyway, it's, <laughs> no, it's Michael in person. We got Michael here. Michael, so, what's up, guys? Yeah, how you so, doing? Michael's back in the studio, which is gonna be good. Uh, but Adam, super excited to have this conversation with you, dude. This is a uh, kind of getting out of our normal weekly comfort zones of normally just interviewing people just on specific hunting tactics to getting more towards the land management side, which, you know, this kind of came about, uh, personally, this, you know, my own knowledge, I want to learn more about things that can be done on, on properties, but also, you know, just after surveying a lot of our listeners, I mean, it's like over 70% of our listeners hunt public or hunt private land, uh, you know, some lease land, some, you know, owned property. So there's, you know, different types of habitat management that can be done there. And then also just with all the requests coming in of guys wanting to, you know, hear and see more about habitat management and stuff down their property, which of course, you know, I'd point over to y'all's podcast too, because yes, which y'all specialize in every single week. Uh, but maybe, you know, for this week's episode, we can kind of get into the rabbit here or go down the rabbit hole on some of these different topics, which Andrew, I think you, you had something that you really yeah. just want to kick off. I've got a couple topics we're going to talk about, but Andrew's yeah. got a certain yeah, way yeah, he wants yeah, to definitely. reach out to it. Well, um, so first and foremost, uh, before I ask like my first question, um, Adam, can you explain what Land and Legacy is and what you guys do? Uh, in 2017, Matt Dye and myself, we partnered and created the company Land and Legacy, and we are a consulting firm or natural resource management company where we specialize in assisting landowners uh, in now about 30 states um, in improving their property, improving the habitat for a lot of the game species that many of us love to hunt from white-tailed deer, wild turkey, and bobwhite quail. Those are kind of the big three that we really manage on. We do a lot of multi-use properties where there's cattle farm part or a cattle component or a crop component and trying to use that uh, in a way that can either improve the habitat for the wildlife which i know you know that's a whole new that's a whole can of worms to go down but using cattle to benefit wild turkey bobwhite quail using cattle as income using the crop to benefit white-tailed deer the turkeys the quail whatever it may be so we just assist landowners in helping them meet meet their goals in the shortest amount of time possible with the least amount of money spent so in a nutshell that's what we do Yep. Yeah. And, uh, and like I said, y'all are a really cool resource and it's been cool to watch you guys grow over the years. Cause, uh, I, I remember actually the first time I ever met you was at the NWTF convention and I asked you something and you're like, Oh, actually we just started this new company. And I was like, Oh really? And you gave me a business card. And that's when I started following you guys individually. Um, <laughs> so dude, I, awesome. I've been following along for quite a while. Um, really again, just like what you guys do, but to kind of kick off this conversation, I think a good lead in, uh, is just going to be, you know, talking about habitat and what habitat actually is, I guess, by definition. Um, yeah. And maybe some misconceptions about it. And that's going to push us in, into a whole big, you know, can of worms later on. But uh, 
if you just had to describe, you know, what is habitat to a white-tailed deer, a bobwhite turkey in a perfect world? Yeah, in a perfect world, I mean, uh, habitat is ultimately bobwhite turkey. Bobwhite turkey. What subspecies is that? You just gave me this look. I was like, oh, man. What subspecies is that? And now you said, I was just going to edit that out, and now I'm just going to have to leave it in because it's now part of the thing. All right, I'm sorry. Yeah, if only there were bobwhite turkeys, that'd be interesting. Bobwhite turkeys <laughs> and wild quail. Yeah, <laughs> basically, you know, you could you could just have an idea that habitat is ultimately all the plants and um, species in an area that are used by said wildlife species to survive, um, from trees to shrubs to grasses to forbs to. Uh, vines, whatever it may be, all of that intertwined that where an animal spends its life. Now, this is where, uh, you know, this is the first can of worms we can get into, um, but this is ultimately kind of one of the the foundational pieces that I find that people are unaware of, and that is that just because there's trees does not mean it's habitat. Just because you see deer in this area does not mean it's quality habitat and i think that's the big that's where we break away and say yeah it's habitat because it is trees but it's not quality and i mean on an average i would say much of the landscape that we visit is maybe a five out of a scale of one to ten in quality habitat fellas that habitat across most of the country is very very poor and i think we're just now starting to really take hold of that idea and understand that there really is something wrong. When we watch quail kind of dwindle down in the last 30 years, everybody's like, oh yeah, the quail, poor quail. Now that it's happening to turkeys, people are starting to really go, whoa, what is going on? And it comes back to our habitat is very, very poor. And that is pretty much the, the area that, that where the white-tailed deer and the wild turkeys spend their, spend their life. And, you know, White-tailed deer are very adaptable, but some of these species like wild turkey and bobwhite quail, they're much more dependent on quality habitat. So um, when it comes to understanding what the difference is, it's ultimately all those plants and um, different species of those plants, whether it be trees, shrubs, grasses, forbs, vines, brambles, whatever you want to call it, all of that on the landscape to help an animal survive the 12 month calendar year. And so that's where I think so many times people see, oh, the deer use that woodlot. Well, that woodlot may provide it. I'm, I'm in the South, so I can say what I truly want to call them, but acorns, they can use those acorns, but that's it. That's that, that really, there's very little cover. There's very little forage um, for the rest of the year, minus the one month that the acorns are dropping. Adam, one one phrase that kind of keeps going through my mind that our buddy Nick Adair from the Gundog Yourself podcast always says, which is um, the phrase, what's good for the bird is good for the herd. Um, can you just briefly touch on, because I know this is a topic that I think we'll cover a little bit more in this episode, but when it comes to like managing properties for like wild turkey and quail, how that may coincide perfectly with white-tailed deer as well, or maybe it doesn't mm. with your professional opinion. Mm, that's a very good question. And, and I think that's, uh, I've said this a lot on our own podcast that if I was managing a property specifically for quail, I would have phenomenal deer hunting. But if I was managing a property specifically for deer, it could be terrible for quail. 
So just because it's good for the deer does not mean it's good for the quail. But there is some truth in that, and, and that's where there really is a balancing act in trying to decide if, you're, if your goal is to manage a property for all three of the common species that many of us talk about. And it could be rough grouse up in the north, but let's just for down south. I want quail, I want turkeys, and I want deer. There is a slight variation in the way I would go about managing those because those two bird species are much more dependent upon a more routine disturbance, whether that be fire, whether that be grazing, whether that be strip disking in an old field area. But they need that disturbance much more than a white-tailed deer. A white-tailed deer, I think many of us would probably say, especially if you're hunting uh, big chunks of public ground or uh, areas of high pressure, that we like that kind of rank, that thick area, because we realize that that's where deer feel comfortable. But if we try to grow thick, rank areas for quail, we will not have quail. That's, I, I, I'm glad you brought that up because uh, our buddy Nick, he just came down here and uh, he was just on this last week's outro of the podcast. And we talked about, he came down here and we went woodcock hunting, uh, hunted for woodcock and quail. And the problem was where we were going, uh, quail forever has done a quite a bit of management on this one piece of public land that we went to. But the habitat, even what he was saying, he's like, it's still too, in a lot of places, it was still just too like briary thick or too uh like yeah high stem count too much slash on the ground yeah too much slash that's what I keep saying too much slash on the yeah. ground in these logged areas um and just the quail weren't there but the woodcock were there in some nasty little yeah. hell holes but it's like again completely different species and they use the landscape completely different but that mm-hmm. was that was a huge issue we ran into along with having a bunch of hogs too and those hogs anywhere there was that uh, that broom sage uh in these savanna ponds yeah. hogs were thick in there. And it's like, I can't imagine, I can't imagine, you know, them not uh, coming through and just, I mean, wiping out, you know, birds in the springtime and, and nests and everything mm-hmm. else. And, you know, also hurting turkey mm-hmm. population too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's, that's all great points. I, to me, if you're trying to manage for um, quail and, and turkeys, like you need that more, you know, it could be even a, a burn every two years or maybe every year, depending on rainfall and the species that are there, I would certainly try to transition away if it's something that grows back so thick and rank that I can carry a fire through every year. But ideally I'm trying to burn every two to three years, three at the max for quail and turkeys, because I want a lot of forbs or or broadleaf weeds like ragweed or partridge pea, um, Illinois bundleflower. Those are some of the big three that I really like, but I want more of that. If I stop burning and it becomes more of a four to five year cycle, I'll probably have more perennial grass base if it's an open landscape, which isn't all bad, but it certainly doesn't attract the amount of insects that those early successional forbs will, which is obviously a huge part of a wild turkey and a, and a quail's diet during the summer months. So for me, I look at it going, okay, I want to take areas of my farm that I don't necessarily want deer in the fall, in the, in the, in the winter, so I want those to be areas that I can focus on quail and turkey management and really get a lot of fire in there. All those forbs grow up that summer forage for the deer. So even if it is up close to the road, deer's not really got a big set of antlers on his head. So even if he's up close to the road, who cares? I mean, it'd take a, a, an outlaw of outlaws to go shooting deer with nubs on their head in the spring. And so I would rather transition into disturbing it with fire or grazing much more frequently in areas that I don't necessarily want deer in anyway. So, uh, 
kind of the last thing I want to say about this when it, when it comes to good good habitat, bad habitat, before we start getting into some more details, is uh, is there any way to kind of tell, like, oh, wow, this is really terrible habitat? Are there any, like, earmarks of that where, you know, someone could walk out to their, their lease or wherever they're hunting and be like, oh, wow, this is pretty terrible? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think first and foremost, you need to identify the species that you're looking at the habitat for or the landscape for. So if I'm looking for white-tailed deer and I'm saying I want some good habitat, ultimately one of the big things I would look for is amount of undergrowth or or species that are growing four foot and down. Am I seeing shrubs? Am I seeing um, grasses? Am I seeing forbs? Am I seeing just vegetation that's growing? And I think this is where a lot of people will really kind of, uh, I'll say this, if my goal on my farm was to deter healthy habitat for white-tailed deer, the number one thing I would do in my forest is let them grow and never cut a tree and never, well, actually I could probably even burn it once every two years to where there is nothing but leaves and sticks in the understory. That would be the worst thing I could do for white-tailed deer. The best thing, if I say I'm, I'm, I want to manage a forest for quality habitat for white-tailed deer, I would have thin forest. I'd have lots of sunlight scattered through in a mosaic fashion. There'd be grasses, forbs, shrubs, young forest growing, and there would still be bigger trees around that are dropping acorns in the in the in the fall. And then I'd run a fire through there uh, every three to five years, and call that phenomenal habitat. If it's a quail, a forest is not doing them anything. And so you really have to identify the species that you're going for first. And then another just general rule would say, how diverse is it? How many different species can I identify just looking out here and say, okay, you know, I'm seeing three different types of shrubs, a dozen different types of trees, a bunch of forbs, some scattered grasses. It, it just, I don't even care about the species. Just know that they're different. And you could say, that, that's probably pretty good habitat. But if you look at it and it's all trees, all about the same age who cares about species it's probably not very high quality habitat it's like and people say well i see deer and pine thickets all the time monocultures i see deer in hardwoods all the time just because you see them there does not mean it's good or quality it's like saying and and i'll I'll give credit where credit's due and i always try to he's the first guy i ever heard it say i don't know if he came up with this on his own on his own he's a he's a phenomenal habitat manager but, and, if, and if he came up with this phrase all on his own, that's the best work he did in his professional career. But he came up with garbage, uh, 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 screw it up. But if you see a homeless man eating out of the trash can, does that mean that it's good food or that it's the only food? We can debate it all day long, but we ultimately know that it's not where you and I are going to go pick up our next burger. It's because it's the only food source. And that was Dr. Craig Harper that said that. So. Yeah, I, I think a lot of times when you see a deer in, a, in the area, it does not mean it's preferred. It may mean that it's just the only option. So, Adam, this opens up uh, a couple of questions just for tr- some terminology for people that are tracking what we're talking about here. Because people are hearing you know us talk about you know habitat, and we talked a little bit about quails and everything, and quail and wild turkey, and also deer. But you know, this is very much you know focus on you know what can these guys 
you know, be learning and doing when it comes to managing their own property on what access they have on that property. Because again, lease land could be completely different from what you have access to, uh, you know, Absolutely. compared to, you know, if you personally own the property um, or privately held. But two term, two uh, two words I'd like for you to just give us definitions on. what is, uh, For the listeners, what is a FORB? And also, what is your definition of a monoculture when it comes to habitat? Uh, so a FORB is the broadleaf flowering plant. So, um, you know, there's all kinds of different FORBs, but Ultimately, it's like you could call it clover, and that also uh, takes in legumes or another like bracket below four. But it's just a broadleaf plant. Um, so ultimately, it's it's not woody substance. It's just a you know examples would be like pokeberry. Uh, I'm trying to think of other southern ones that you would see like crazy wing stem ragweed. Um, basically that's that's kind of a good gist for a forb um a monoculture is an area that is made up of one species so uh loblolly pine monoculture um you don't see a ton of monocultures in a forest because there's probably going to be like an oak hickory forest because there are varying species but um another monoculture example would be a cornfield a soybean field um uh, fescue pasture, things like that. That kind of gets us over to a point I want to kind of get to in this episode, which is talking about when it comes to land management and and habitat management and and building a better quality management, because I mean, there's, there's small things you can do, but it may not truly drastically increase the the quality uh, of habitat on, you know, your property that you have access to. Uh, I I can Mm -hmm. always go back when we have these conversations to uh, our family farm uh, in central Alabama, uh, which for a long time, for way before I was born, it used to be a, uh, my great grandfather had it as a, it was a big cattle farm and then he sold off different chunks of it and, and left. It was over 500 acres. He sold it off to about 90 acres and, uh, that 90 acres got, uh, got handed down to my uncle who owns the property. And he actually went out there and it was still, you know, when he was in his twenties, he planted loblolly pines. Cause he was like, Oh, well for timber, you know, I can make some money off this in, you know, 20, 25 years or so. And, uh, anyways, he's already cut the property and it's been cut for probably about eight years now, a large majority of it. And he's ran fires through some of it. Uh, they kind of keep it more back towards that, uh, broom sage kind of, um, habitat with, you know, different, different forbs. He runs a fire through there every couple of years. Uh, and then some of it, he's kind of let go back thicker than probably what it should have been. And it, yeah. it, it's kind of changed the way I've looked at habitat management because a lot of people think of habitat management. Oh man, I'm just going to go, um, let's see, I'm going to go hinge cut some trees. I'm going to go, um, t- I mean, run a prescribed fire through some woods, uh, and just leave it at just the fire itself and, and not do any kind of timber stand management. When it comes to like a well-rounded property, we're talking, you know, we're talking the Southeast here, um, you know, you know, mm-hmm. in general, you know, talking, you know, areas with loblolly pines, uh, whether it's a lease or a private land, you know, with some mixed cutovers. And then also in another example, kind of like more that hill country, uh, oak hickory forest that you find throughout the Southeast as well. Um, when it comes to like a, a, a well-done management plan, of course, I know that's what you guys specialize, specialize in, but when it comes to someone trying to do some things on their own, you know, running a fire is always, you know, running prescribed fire is always something that's very intimidating, I think, for a lot of people because uh, they're like, oh, mm-hmm. I'm going to light the woods on fire. And, uh, you know, of course, then you check with local regs. I'm sure you have some tips on that. But what are some of those things that people can look at trying to do 
to you know get a leg up on their property uh, for quality habitat come this spring uh you know for the turkeys and then also you know potentially if there's quail on the property and then getting ready for the fall what are the, some of those small things that a guy can do without having you know, just a ton of um, you know whether he needs to have permits or other liabilities that he could uh, deal with with uh, different management practices yeah, absolutely. How much more time we got on this podcast? Because we can we can spend an hour on it. Well, listen, we got um, we got extra X, SD cards, man. So if we fill one up, which Andrew <laughs> told me we have a certain amount of time, we'll throw another SD card in there. So that we're good. Oh, perfect. So I cannot emphasize. Well, a couple of things. I want to start out and say I've got a question for you guys before I answer that. How much time in a ratio do you guys spend hunting public land versus private land? Uh, we spend. Almost all of our time on public. That that might change next year. I think I'm going to try to get in a lease or a club, um, but it'll probably mm-hmm. be like fifty fifty, maybe if I if I do get him one. Okay. Um, yeah. So about fifty fifty, hopefully in the future. But right now, you're spending most of your time on public ground. And I'll say this because this is my job, so like I enjoy it. Obviously, um, I, it, it'd be if I, it'd be terrible if I didn't enjoy my job, but. Um, because I'm very blessed to get to do this. But if if I had 100 acres to manage versus 5,000-acre national forest or down, just down the road, I would prefer the 100 acres. And that's just me personally. But that is because there's so much potential in things you can do on private ground that you could never imagine doing on public ground just because of you know, all the, all the regs and different bureaucratic stuff that's involved with, with public land. So that's just me personally. And that's a big part of my business. So obviously I'm biased towards private land ownership, but this is the time of the year that landowners have the opportunity to do work that is going to be, we're sowing seeds right now and the harvest comes this fall. Many people have skipped out on sowing the seeds in the winter and the spring to where the harvest is not nearly as good come fall. It's like you're you're trying to you're trying to harvest volunteer corn in the fall that's been overran with weeds. The harvest just isn't as good as a manicured cornfield you're controlling the weeds, you've done adequate soil amendments. So this is the time of the year that I strongly emphasize to landowners to get out and do some work on their property. Now, the next question is, what kind of work? Fire does scare people. It is something that, you know, the news ultimately scares us to death because we see all these raging fires out west. And in, in western Oklahoma and Kansas, we're like, whew, there's a lot of liability involved in that. Somebody's somebody's in trouble. But in the southeast, fire is so crucial into improving the habitat for not only turkeys, but also for deer um, and quail as well. So if you're managing for turkeys, you, you need to consider fire. It's going to be a very tough road to hoe if you're not using fire and you're trying to improve the property for turkeys. Um, but things that you can do that aren't including fire is firing up a chainsaw, going into a woodlot, and you can identify different areas. And so your cutting techniques can vary. But if you can just say, okay, I know about on this little chunk of ground I've got here, I know there's a couple of areas that deer like to bed there because it was a a little knoll or for whatever reason, the terrain made a little feature that they like to bed on. I know that's pretty good. Let's go make it great. 
So in that area, I'm going to fire up a chainsaw, and this would take a tank of gas in the in the in the chainsaw. Wouldn't take you very long at all. But you can go in and say, I'm going to identify some tree species that if I let them grow for 20 more years, they're never going to be a log. They're just the the wrong species, the wrong growth structure. It's twisted trunk, triple trunk, whatever it may be. And I go in and I just start dropping some trees. I mix in a few hinge cuts, which can be a curse word to some people if not, but it's a it's a pretty good tool. It's not timber stand improvement, but it's a pretty good tool to get some structure in that forefoot and down that's really uh, ideal for deer. So I would try to thicken up some areas with a chainsaw. Just identify areas that are not right next to the road, that are back in the timber, off the food plot 100 yards or so, and I just thicken up a half acre. And And that could be as simple as just cutting weed trees. And then I would go, okay, you know what? I need a little bit more growth in some of the rest of my forest. So let's just go and identify trees that are junk and just start cutting trees. That would be another thing I could do. And this is a time of year that I love doing that. Unfortunately, I'm always on the road, so I don't get to do it a lot on my own farm during the best time of year. So I, I typically do a lot of cutting in the summer, uh, which is not fun, but it, that's the cards that I'm dealt because of my business. Now, another thing you could do while still using a chainsaw could be edge feathering. You could go in and say, okay, how many times have I hunted this food plot or this field and deer are always on the other end and they're not really coming into bow range till almost dark? How can I bring it to where my access is great, I never have to walk through the food plot, but how can I maybe encourage them to use this end of the food plot versus that end? Well, that's where use one of the techniques I talked about earlier, identifying a hot spot, a good bedding area, making it great, go in and cut 50% of the trees as long as they're all weed trees and just cut them and hinge them and make it a thicket. And then I put that hopefully closer to the end that I can hunt, then do a little edge feathering. And um, ultimately I'm just cutting trees that are along that edge. So right now it may be a cliff. And by that, I mean really tall trees to food plot or crop field or whatever it may be. But I would like it to be a staircase instead. I want different layers as it drops down to the food plot. So I may go 10 yards in and cut most of those little trees that are leaning, reaching for sunlight. And I may just drop them on the ground. I may mix in a few hinge cuts, whatever. Then I go in another layer and I drop, you know, a few more trees, but not get as aggressive as I was on the edge. And then just by doing that, I'm allowing there to be more structure for rabbits and quail, turkeys to nest, and deer feel more comfortable because there's adequate cover right next to that food plot so i'm increasing my chances of seeing deer during daylight that's another one of my all-time favorite techniques is edge feathering um, other things you can do this is just crucial this time of year is invasive species control or um, just going into your woodlots finding invasives like chinese privet since we're in the south we'll really focus on that one china berry tree of heaven um what are some other ones that you can really find? And I would just go through and uh, with those, and I would just find them, start hacking, squirting them, or spraying them with herbicide, girdling, spraying them, and just removing those. Because ultimately, your property is a checkerboard. You have only so many spaces. You can't just keep stacking them in there. You can try to stack, uh, what are they, I haven't played checkers. You can try to stack the checkers on top of each other and doing all that, but ultimately, you have only so many acres and only so many square feet. So a lot of times just by removing the unwanted ones, we can open up the, 
the the board for more pieces to fall in place and those invasives aren't really doing us much so as long as we can continue removing those that opens the door to have more beneficial species um, so invasive species control add that to the list another one is dormant season disking. If I have some old fields that aren't food plots that are just kind of old odd areas or dead zones where I'm not really doing anything, just run a disc through there a little bit and get get promote some forbs. That's going to be summer food. Um, you know, that's a lot of my favorite things to do just in the month of January and February. So uh, you've said a couple of things I, I really want to touch on. Uh, you said I, the word privet and Jacob just perked up. Yeah, yeah, because it was either Adam, it was either you or Matt just, I mean, laid into me because I made a post a little while back. It was probably like a year and a half ago, and it again took it took it with a, uh, it was it was all good. But like I was talking about, like they cover on public land, like oh, private man, deer get in there, and you're like, that's terrible. Don't be promoting that stuff. I'm, I agree. I would Maybe never. It was me. Yeah. Okay. I was gonna say I would never want them on, on my private land. Hey, private's a good example though. What we were talking about earlier about how well, that's something that we talk about a lot. Because we're like, yeah. man, you get in those privet thickets and the deer are in there. That doesn't mean it's good Absolutely. habitat. That means that it's the best thing to have available. To, so not, that, to not get yeah. shot. Yeah. They're like, yeah. okay. If yeah. They're, yeah. If they don't want to get shot, they go hang out in a privet thicket, you know? So. Absolutely. I, absolutely. You wouldn't, I mean, I always try to, maybe this is a bad analogy, but I think it's pretty, a lot of people can relate to it now, but I don't feel comfortable. I wouldn't feel comfortable if I was going through a dark alley in New York City right now. But I would sure dive into a dumpster if it allowed me to escape from getting shot. And I think the Chinese privet thickets are a lot like that, where ultimately deer are in there because they, they can survive in there. But it's not by choice. This is not a world that is just by choice. Like, we're in a cursed world. We're dealing with lots of different obstacles. And everything's just trying to survive. And when you look at Chinese privet, like, when you see nothing but... Chinese privet filling the understory. This is what's scary, guys, especially in an oak hickory forest where it's been an oak hickory forest for years and years and years and years. And I can go on and on and on with that. But all of a sudden, in the last 50, Chinese privet's just taken over. What do you think is going to happen to that forest? There's no young oaks. So eventually, when those tall oaks and hickories die, it's going to be privet. Unless somebody does something. And I'll tell you one thing. There's not a year-round food source with just privet for wild turkeys and, and bobwhite quail to exist. So that's the scary part. And that's why I'm so adamant about, you know. And, and, and let's shoot. that. Let's talk about the other elephant in the room with, with non-native species that people in the South can really key in on. Japanese honeysuckle. I mean, you go in the South, it's like Japanese honeysuckle. And I remember reading an article when I was a kid about Japanese. This guy talked about his buddy being like Johnny Appleseed, but with Johnny honeysuckle. He spread it everywhere. And, yeah, deer love it. But it is not something that turkeys and quail are going to make a living on. So I think we have to be careful praising, um, you know, non-native, especially invasive species. And there is a different difference between the two. But uh, my apologies, Jacob, I, I almost guarantee you, because I'm usually the, the Nazi on the social media world where I see somebody talking about invasives. I'm like, no, no, we won't. <laughs> no, it's, it was all good. I mean, I knew exactly where you were coming from. I mean, in, in my, again, my take on, like I said, is like, you know, if it's on public land, there's nothing you can really like unless you could talk to biologists, but if it's not in their budget, they're not going to go through. And also in Alabama, the problem is when it comes to management, unlike other states like Tennessee and even Missouri is a really good state because a lot of the public land in Missouri, I believe, is owned by the state. 
uh, where yeah. a lot of a lot of public land in Alabama uh, is leased by the state. At least a lot of the management areas, they're not actually purchased. The state doesn't actually own a lot of that property. They lease it from timber companies, which is a terrible deal. That's why we're losing so much public land. But they have no control on any kind of habitat management. They can't control fire. They can't run fires. They can't do anything on there uh, really at all. It's just they're pretty much just leasing it for hunting rights. That's it. Um, no. so it's a totally different situation there, but I'll say this, um, uh, the invasive species things is something that's kind of crazy because on our family farm, we have issues. There is a back corner of the property that has kudzu on it, which is another terrible invasive. A lot of people, some people, yeah. some people are like, Oh, well, man, it's super high crude po- protein. I think it's like over 18% crude protein. Yeah. But as fast as it grows, I've gone down there. I have bush hogged a trail and come back within a week in that trail, which is as wide as a, you know, a freaking you know, a brush hog on a 110 horsepower, uh, um, mm-hmm. tractor is pretty much covered. Like it mm. within, within about a week, how fast that stuff, that stuff grows. And it's crazy. Cause we're going down there. We're mowing every 10 days. They're cutting trails every 10 days. They're cutting trails yeah. in that stuff. Yeah. And the problem is like, okay, it's, you know, it's low on the ground. It's not the issue, but the problem is it grows up every single tree and it kills the trees. Like we've had some huge oaks yeah. die because it grows up on it. And that tree falls over and just, I mean, engulfs it. And that was another, when you brought up the invasive species, that was the really the first one other than Chinese prairie that came to mind is that kudzu, just because of how mm-hmm. impactful it can be, along with another uh, invasive that I don't know if y'all really deal with, especially up in Missouri, but I know down here it's in certain places where people have planted, um, it's not cane, it's a type of bamboo uh, that people used to put, I guess, in their, oh, yeah. in their yards. Yeah. And it's it, just bamboo, or, ornamental bamboo. Yeah. yeah. It, and it takes over, and I haven't. I mean, I guess you could run a fire through it at some point, but I have no idea how you kill it. And uh, I've seen that in other small properties where there used to be like a little, little homestead on there, and now it's taken over, you know, 10, 15, per, you know, percent of a, a small property is now just that yeah. stuff. Absolutely. And you guys, there's a long list of invasive species that have been introduced from ornamental standpoints. And, and I mean, I talk about a lot about there's property in Ohio, where is that? Where basically it was the ornamental stuff and just escaped everywhere. Um, or bamboo is a tough one. If you, you got to get on it early before it starts spreading because you ultimately, there's a lot of herbicide that has to go into to spraying it and, and killing it. So, uh, yeah, it's just a, it's a, ongoing uphill fight of fighting invasive species that are introduced that a lot of times that good intentions uh of planting it but you know i grew up with the with the mindset that uh the road to hell was paved with good intentions and so ultimately same thing with with uh with deer hunters and wildlife managers we all had a good intentions at one point or another but if we're promoting an invasive or a non-native at the time and it turns into an invasive yeah good intentions got us nowhere yeah, and another thing that I like what you said earlier is you were kind of talking about the property like a checkerboard, and you only have so many square feet of that property, and really maximizing every square foot that you have to make it work for you. Um, yeah. And taking out the invasives, you're just adding more land to the to the queue that you can do stuff to to make it much better hunting for yourself, make it more productive. So uh, I think that's a really great, really great example. It's like this. I mean. Non-natives, especially invasive species, are bully plants. They're just bullies. They they get on site and they just start throwing their elbows out and bullying everybody around. Many of our native species are very like peace-waving plants of going, you know what, come on in. Like we can all grow together 
and sing kumbaya. I mean, let's get as corny as possible when we talk about native species. Because if you look at just an, a nice, diverse native acre, there's thousands of species that can probably grow in that, especially in a prairie. But in a woodland or savanna, same thing. But if you start introducing these non-natives that don't have a natural pest to keep them in check, all of a sudden, half the acre is that one species. And that one species only attracts a couple of insects during a certain time of the year. So then you can start seeing how food sources for wild turkey and quail go down drastically as you start seeing just one species. I've got a question, and this may be off topic, but it kind of plays in. Uh, When you're trying to do these mosaic you know, type, you know, areas. Do you run into any kind of issues like when loggers come in, like they won't cut a certain amount to actually allow you to have that piece, you know, I guess made into a cutover, like they won't touch like a certain, you know, acreage or something like that because it's not worth the trouble? Yeah, or certain species or certain ages of certain species all the time, weekly. Um and, I, and I ultimately, that kind of helps play into the mosaic feature of the, of the property. You can look at a mosaic as the growth structure or the age of trees. You can also look at that, the species to create that mosaic. And then combine those two, and you get an even greater mosaic across the landscape. So, um, you know, for example, my property um, that we purchased, when we went to log it, you know, it, it was oak hickory forest, or it, it is an oak hickory forest. I didn't cut it that much to change that feature of it. But if you look at um, the the cutting that they've done now, I think many people would say you cut it too hard. Because to get the logger there, to get him to spend enough time on the property to get the income that we were hoping and open up the canopy enough, they went in and we call it scrag, and you could call it pulp wood or paper mill cutting l- lumber, smaller stuff just to open up the canopy and get a lot of these trees out of here and ultimately make them enough money that it was worth their time. That was one way that we, you know, it wasn't ideal, but we used, you know, we were handed lemons and we made lemonade with it because we got a canopy much more open than, than it would have been if we just used a traditional um, logger who's just going to cut stave logs and call it good. And that, that brings up a question that, I hear a lot is, you know, guys like, hey, I'm buying a property. And it seems like the real, the land real estate market is so hot right now. Uh, I've got a lot of buddies that are in that, in that realm of uh, career. And it's like, I mean, they can't, it doesn't matter how much a property costs. They can't keep anything on the market for the most part, if it's a decent property within, for for more than a week or so. Um, But when a lot of people are buying properties, I think a lot of people are looking for like, what's a quick return on investment on that property? And everybody looks at logging. If, if somebody, if a listener said they were buying a property and purchased a property, say like this time of year, like in the off season right now, uh, getting ready for, you know, the springtime, if they were going to log that property, now knowing a little bit more like on the, uh, I guess, a, a quality habitat manager's perspective, instead of just maybe cutting a property and instantly uh, going back and saying, this is in the deep south, going back and then, you know, planting it in Loblolly Pines for a quick turnaround. What would be your take or your advice on somebody if they were wanting a quick return on investment? They want to cut some pro- cut some of that timber on the property, um, and you could give we could give an example. You know, one's maybe you know thirty five or forty year old uh, pines, and the other example maybe is that more oak hickory forest. 
what would be your advice when it comes to replanting or maintaining that property once you kind of bring it back to ground zero uh, with a you know a large percentage of the cut? Yikes, that's a deep question. There, uh, that's a good one. Um, are you? Are we talking? Let's clarify something. Are we? We're purchasing it and we're going to log it. Are Are we planning on a future log? Uh, like 30 years from now? I would say if as a guy for a family property and he wasn't just going to flip the property in you know, five to 10 years, because I know guys that do that too as part of their business strategy, uh, I would say mm-hmm. this is like a family farm. I'll give you an example. Backside of our family farm, there's 75 acres. My uncle's been wanting to purchase for about 15 years and the woman won't sell it. It is primo uh-huh. um, uh, oak, uh, hickory. It's, it's, a lot, it's a huge stand of white oaks, beautiful timber, um, old growth timber. And he, his kind of mindset was 70, it was 75 acres and he would said he would want to cut probably about 50 acres of it. Okay. Get a return, Mm -hmm. you know, a decent return on uh, investment of buying the property and then look to replant the property after that. But again, keep it within the family. It would just be additional to his property that he already owns. This is on the backside of it. So if it was Mm -hmm. more so in that aspect, like a guy's buying a property for his family, we give an example, say it's 150 acres. Okay. You know, Mm -hmm. nice little size property. He's wanting to get a return of his investment. He wants to cut some of the property and then have yeah. it for family and friends and stuff to hunt on, ride ATVs yeah. on, the whole nine yards in the, for the future. Yeah. Uh, so first and foremost, I'm a huge advocate of cutting timber. And that's not just from a financial standpoint, but that's from a diversifying farm standpoint and allowing us to open up that canopy to be much more beneficial to uh, wildlife. And there's some guys that are probably shutting off the podcast right now because I just said the most idiotic thing they've ever heard. So I'm going to say stop that and say just listen. Many of the timber cutting that we've done or we've witnessed has been done incorrectly and has not been most importantly followed up with the appropriate management. And so just because the logging was done doesn't mean it was all bad, but the management that followed probably was. Same thing with cows. Cattle grazing is not terrible. I mean, bison herds of old were everywhere across the United States, so grazing was a huge part. But now today, grazing is used incorrectly on many farms. And so cattle are not bad. They're just managed uh, incorrectly in many forms. So I'm a huge fan of cutting timber. I love opening up canopies. I love a healthy forest with diversified age structures. So I would probably lean on cutting at least a big portion. Let's just say the first year you cut some pines, uh, thin, you know, cut the pines, you know, whatever age growth they were, whether it was going to be a second or, or complete final clear cut um, on the third cutting, whatever that may be, I would probably say, you know what, let's look at it way out long-term investment and say, do I want to plant this in Loblolly? Do I want to, do I want to plant this back in, you know, shoot, like maybe Longleaf? Uh, and just say, let's, let's go that route. Let's just see what it's like with Longleaf. Now, it may take a little longer, but it's much more fire dependent. So if I'm not as focused on the income down the road and, and, and I'm really willing to take a little risk, I might go Longleaf and then get much more, a much better fire regime that I know is much more beneficial to the wildlife with the potential of a nice harvest later on. If I'm going on the hardwoods, I would look at it and say, what is the oak species? Are they white oak? Are they red oak? What what age do we think they are now? Because if it's a bunch of red oaks, I may say, you know what, we're going to cut a lot of the red oaks because you may have some sort of disease. And and if I let them grow 30, 30 more years, they'd be nothing but a bunch of skeletons, hollow. They look healthy, but as soon as we start cutting them, we realize they're mostly hollow. 
that's what I'm going through here on my farm with the black oaks um, is that same species. So I may cut that, the hardwoods, two or three years later, and I may cut the, I would cut the whole area, but I would leave a lot of the big oaks and I'm like, you know what, that tree is over 150 years old. It's huge. I'm going to leave it. And that may be a roost tree or that may be a seed tree as in it pr produces a ton of acorns to to go out on the landscape, I'm going to be burning, I'm going to promote those, and ultimately I'm going to get more oaks because that tree's still here. So I would cut the whole place. I would just look at making sure I'm not clear-cutting the whole place. And Unless it's the pines and it's ready to be clear-cut, then I'd plant it right back into something else and start managing it. But I would also make sure I'm leaving open areas dotted through the landscape. And, and that is a conversation worth having, which I think from a Southerner's perspective, they hear cuts and they automatically like cutting logging automatically go to clear cuts oh man there's gonna it's, yeah it's gonna be nothing but bare ground and freaking slash piles and just a barren wasteland but what you're talking yeah. about is not necessarily doing that but be more almost like a, a select cut or a almost a thinning process in some of this yeah. unless like you said it yeah. is loblollies that are at the point that like hey we're just gonna do a, a complete clear cut and, and start fresh on it exactly yeah there's two different types of cutting i would do and you know you're in the south and you're trying to you manage pine so it's it's thinning um thinning and then eventually a clear cut and then probably a replanting which is fine i mean that is we don't gripe the only reason we don't gripe about corn and soybeans in iowa is because deer eat that but down south we gripe about it but guys these are landowners still trying to make money and pay for the farm so we gotta be we gotta take it easy on them we just hopefully can can help manage and and do some things that can that can benefit the wildlife and and at the same time they're trying to make money. Now on the flip side, say somebody buys a property because uh, I was talking to another buddy of mine about this for quite some time, uh, who's a land real real estate agent. That uh, I had the idea of going down, which you may be familiar with this area in Alabama called the Black Belt. <laughs> Um, yeah. and just a very diverse area of Alabama, you know, it's known for, it's kind of like the, Andrew, you call it like the plains. Uh, yeah, it's got a uh, good black dirt, you know, it's not like this clay or sand that we have through most of the area. It's, it's like a band of fertile soil that runs. And you can actually state. see on aerial imagery, like with satellite imagery, when you zoom out where you can see like the whole Southeast United States, you can see the black belt, how it runs through Alabama. It's really interesting on the maps. Um, but was to buy a property down there, you know, 50, 60, 80 acres and manage it just for like Savannah uh, or like, you know, manage it more for like the upland species, like your quail and everything, which in turn is going to, you know, you're have deer on the property and wild turkey too. Um, but do it more so from the aspect of, hey, I don't need to have just a ton of tree cover on the property, but manage it more so as almost like that prairie land, like very, very diverse, yeah. high fire intensity, uh, you know, on a, on a uh, fairly quick rotation, like you said, like every year, every other year, something like that. Um, yeah. on the property and kind of bring it back to that natural habitat. Cause that's what used to be down there. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so it, say you had a guy that again, talking deep South here, uh, you know, South Georgia, Alabama, maybe Mississippi, that is more in that lonely pine, uh, Savannah type of country. And they were going to want to manage it and they bought a property and, and maybe it's like me, I, the property I was looking at possibly purchasing at a t at one time had just been recently cut and I mean, the whole thing was clear cut. So you were starting, I mean, fresh with the property. If you had somebody like that, cause you can buy that property fairly cheap, uh, you know, acreage yeah. wise, if you were going to buy something like that, where it was freshly clear cut within a year or two and say it's, you know, mm -hmm. a smaller property, like a hundred acres or less, 
what would be some of those first things you'd want to start doing on a property like that? Because you got it at a, probably a pretty good price, uh, but maybe you got it in a, in a really well-pronounced area of the state, maybe more known for you know your quail and also maybe quality of deer. How would you manage a yeah. blank slate like that compared to something that already has timber on it? Yeah, absolutely. Those are great questions. Um, you know, that, that right there might be the secret that we don't want too many people to get to. We don't want that secret getting out because that is something that, um, here in the Ozarks, same thing. You find a property that's been completely hammered, you can buy it pretty cheap. Well, I don't know about you guys and what the perception of, uh, of, uh, clear cuts is for most of your audience, but you know, give it a couple of years post clear cut and there's going to be a lot of deer on that place. And if you can manage back all the briars and all the sweet gums and control the broom sedge from completely taking over, uh, that's just fire, by the way, fire and herbicide in, in those sweet gums. And you can set that all back. Now we're getting to where, shoot, <laughs> you can do some pretty awesome things. And so you, you got the property cheap and all of a sudden you're cleaning it up and, and, uh, now we're doing some stuff that is really beneficial wildlife. And so you have the ability. I, and I, so I would, I love the idea of buying the property that everybody thinks is a complete cut over piece of crap. Um, that happens a lot in many of the United States. I've been on many clients properties where they bought it dirt cheap and they're kind of like, yeah, I know it's rough. And I'm like, it looks rough now, but it's going to be awesome in less than 10 years. And so I would say, you know, first and foremost, I look at my long-term plans. What is my long-term plan? Is this got to make some money? Do I want this to have trees? What am I really going for? What species am I focused on? And if it's quail, deer, turkeys, all of them, then I'm going, okay, I need some areas. I'm going to plant some pines or I'm going to plant some trees back that are native, native to this area. I'm going to try to grow some trees. I'm going to leave some open ground. I'm going to use fire because this is a black belt region and uh, fire was here and I'm going to continue to use it. And I'm going to try to set up some road systems where I can burn in a checkerboard effect where I'm not burning a whole half or a quarter of the property. I'm burning a quarter of the property strung out in eight different units or four different units. Um, and so that would ultimately for me be, if it's me personally, I'm going historically, this was longleaf pine savanna. Um, so I'm going to roll in here and I'm going to plant some longleafs. I'm going to take some of these little lowland areas that had some oaks and I'm going to try to release those, the, the few that were left. I'm going to, I'm going to cut the trees are out from around them. I'm going to make sure it doesn't get taken over with sweet gums. Um, I'm going to monitor my invasives that are probably here in the seed bank and I'm just going to keep burning. So do you think that a lot of this disconnect, like, you know, I, I hear a, a lot about, you know, habitat improvement and a lot of this is really focused on like stuff that deer feel secure in. It offers a lot of food, but what about the huntability of the property? Because I was in a club when I was a lot younger and it was full of, you know, hardwoods and then they came in and cut it and it was really good to a certain point before they, you know, started cutting everything. I mean, everything mm -hmm. but the, the streamside management zones. And I know a lot of the hunters got upset because of the huntability aspect. Like they lost all of their trees that, you know, they were going to and they would see deer come out and, you know, now they're having to sit 
on a on a food plot because there's nowhere for them to go because there's no actual trees to climb like is there like what's your opinion do you think that that's a lot of the disconnect in that or you know are there any options to you know to kind of make everybody kind of happy yeah i think so and and you know i think for me personally um when this is ultimately a, a big part. We call them betting tickets, um, or micro clear cuts. And that really came down to the fact that we know that ben, that clear cuts are incredibly beneficial and can hold a lot of deer. Um, I forget the research. I think it was out of Penn State where they radio collared a buck, and I forget how big the clear cut was. But ultimately it was like he lived in there during the rut. That's where he was. But it was a big clear cut. So if I can take something that I know is beneficial and put it down in a smaller scale, that's how I – you know, I know where I'm hunting come November 5th or whenever your rut is. I'm hunting close to those thick areas. So I think a lot of times, too, when it comes to clear cuts and, and different areas and you're trying to pinpoint, um, yeah, it, it can seem thick. But nine times out of ten, when a when a landlord tells me it's just too thick, it's hard to pinpoint them, I get in there and I'm like, it's, it's thick. It's just thicker. It, it's not the thickness that I would really key in on. And so there's some areas that we can say, you know, if it's 10 foot tall re-sprouts and different things, we can say, okay, let's go into some of these areas where it's junk and hinge cut some and cut some over and, and just try to keep fire out of there and let it get thick and rank. Um, and that's where I would pinpoint hunting. Um, and, and ultimately that gets some of the pressure off my food plots. And so I can hunt and see daylight activity because I'm not hunting food plots all the time and I'm getting into some of these thicker areas. Um, my farm personally, um, to give you an example, has been cut pretty hard. But what we did since it's Oak Hickory Forest is, you know, we, we didn't clear cut, but if you were to just look at it in two years, you're going to say the whole place is thick. But it's thick with undergrowth, herbaceous stuff, grasses and forbs and a few brambles. But where it's really thick is been clear cut and then a lot of hinge cuts. So there's woody structure sticking up off the ground three or four foot uh, from the hinge cut. And so now we have grasses and forbs, but also this really nice woody structure. And that's not occurring on all the other landscapes. So if I'm dealing with that, I'm running fire and I'm using a chainsaw to manipulate and force thicker areas to hunt on and kind of going back to that that aspect of like what michael was talking about but also what i brought up was like you know if you're going to buy one of those properties that's you know fairly less expensive you know you know when you're talking your bigger acreage everything's gonna be pricey but yeah it's uh, all expensive now yeah but when you're talking like you get a clear-cut property maybe you get a price break of a couple hundred bucks uh per acre uh or even maybe i've seen some of those i've seen i saw one oh man i saw one property in the black belt Thank God I didn't buy it because it wouldn't. I wouldn't be able to go full time with the podcast and everything else I had going on. Uh, but uh, it was just at I think it's a thousand dollars an acre, uh, which is super inexpensive in, in that area compared to like some of that timbered property. But again, it was an area that had just been freshly cut over. There were slash piles everywhere on this property. But it, it brings up the question that I think was partially of what Michael was asking too is if you were to get on a property like that where it was, I mean, the whole thing is cut. There's not other than like some scraggly little you know, 12 foot tall saplings that might've been out there that just, they didn't run over uh, with the equipment. Yeah. It's cleared. 
from a bow hunter's perspective, from a gun hunter, I'm like, it, dude, it's awesome. I do. You know, you get you a tripod stand yeah. or something, you're, like, you're, you're good to go. But from a bow hunter's perspective, it's like, well, man, there's no trees I can get in. I can't get, there's no, there's no stand sites, you know, there's no trees. So yeah. I got to hunt from the ground. If I hunt from the ground, it's got to be on a food plot or some kind of roadway or something through that stuff that I could see through. Mm. So what would be your yeah. opinion when it comes to management and also potential as a buyer buying a property like that? you know, it kind of gives some of those people's more peace of mind of like, Hey, you know, maybe it, it, it looks rough right now, but let's look at big picture, you know, years into the future, especially if this is going to be like an investment property or a property that you're going to put some more time in for your family in the future. Yeah. Well, I, I'll steal something that, um, I think it was fixer upper. Um, bless my wife's heart for making my, <laughs> making me watch that stuff. But, uh, I think they say something about taking the worst house in the best neighborhood and fixing it up. And ultimately that's what I'm looking at. I'm looking at with this, with these uh, pieces of ground that have been cut over. It's the, it's the ugliest farm in in the neighborhood, but by golly, we're going to do some work and it's going to be the best hunting property in the neighborhood. And the neighbors are going to be wishing they bought this one. And so the pinpointing, like, you, you, it's kind of one of those it's it's lemons and we're going to make lemonade so yeah we all dream of sitting in a nice white oak but if if it comes to killing a mature deer and you got to hunt from a ground blind or hunt from a little bit elevated blind i think we would all say i'll take my chances in the ground blind because i want to kill that deer right i don't think i would meet a guy that say sorry i only want to shoot big deer out of a out of a out of a tree stand or a saddle i mean that's me personally but um, for me, you know, there's so many things to do in a property like that to pinpoint how to how to how do you take 200 acre cut over that looks terrible and get a deer within bow range consistently? I mean, that's ultimately what I'm challenged with weekly or at least monthly if I'm going into the south and I'm dealing with these cutovers. And that really comes down to guys, it, it looks thick and rank and nasty right now. And this slash and there's treetops everywhere. Like, yeah, that all looks right. But guess what? Fire will clean it up. So I can burn that. And I'll, t- I'll take a section and say, you know what? This is burned. We're going to burn this. And I know that during the rut, yeah, there's going to be the, the, the occasional deer that passes through there. But guess what? The dense cover is right over here in this area. So we have to identify dense cover. And, and ultimately, that's where we have to understand what dense cover is out of the gate. Dense cover is not just grass four foot tall. Dense cover that I really want to key in on is that grass is four foot tall with some brambles and a treetop down that I don't go into. And 10 yards away is more grass, more treetop, more bramble that deer can get in and feel comfortable. And so if I can find that, and it's not going to be across 20 acres, it will be in little bitty specific spots. And that's where I want to find that. I want to try to ring a fire around it, maybe not, or a fire break around it so I don't burn it every two years. But I leave it alone and I let it get thick and rank. And then just off of that 30 yards or so, I try to figure out a way to access in and get just close enough to it. I've said this a lot on our podcast and I say it to a lot of our clients. But if you've ever watched Home Improvement with Tim Allen back in the 90s, there was a guy on that show called Wilson, and Wilson was through, I think, all the seasons. Do you guys know? Did you guys watch the show, or am I talking to air here? Yeah, uh, yeah I, I know. watched it. Absolutely. Okay, so, so, so Wilson, he 
was throughout the whole season, but all you ever saw was his nose and up. You never got to see his full face. He was never fully exposed. And so as a deer hunter, I want to set up like Wilson in the, and, and I'm looking into the deer's backyard. I know what's going on, but the deer can't see me completely. And so I would go like 30, 50, 60 yards off of that dense area. And if I can find my access point in, I would maybe go, okay, here's a little flat area. Let's take the bush hog in here and let's knock this down and make this like a little bitty opening or meadow, if you will. And maybe we'll just kind of scratch it up. I don't, it doesn't have to be a food plot. I just call them wildlife openings, but I'll make for darn sure a couple of big scrape limbs on that. And it's like creating this bedroom or dormitory in college. And then just off of that is the lounge area with the bulletin board. Then the bulletin board gets all the news of what's going on on campus or on the farm. And I want all the deer that are going into that thicket to kind of hit that lounge area, hit those scrapes, ultimately the bulletin board, see who's in the area, see what's going on before they go in. So this is like me kind of like sitting right on the fence, poking my nose in, but not disturbing it. And that's where I look at getting deer in bow range. You really have to identify and not being blinded by, you know, the phrase that you can't see the forest through the trees. It can be pretty daunting to look at a big clear cut and say, this is all the same, but it's really not. You just have to know exactly what you're looking for. House of Game Call's Dixie Hen Slate was just voted the overall best turkey call by Field and Stream Outdoors, and trust me, it's super easy to run and be extremely dynamic when you're in the turkey woods. Now, we've mentioned a couple of these calls in the past, like the Spurmaster and the Success Call in a past episode with both Gary Vines and Lyle Gilbert of Houndstooth Game Calls. And it was funny enough, y'all actually bought every Spurmaster call and Success Call they had. Now, pay attention to their website. They're going to have some more come up in stock in the next few days. So when they come available, make sure you get one if you did not purchase one before they sold out last time. Both the Spurmaster and the Success Call are fantastic for hunting high-pressure turkeys, whether you're on a hunting club where you have a lot of other members hunting those same turkeys, or if you're on public land. Again, both of those calls will make you sound a little bit different from everybody else and be a lot more subtle in your calling technique and be able to really help close those distance with those gobblers. So if you want to give Houndstooth Game Calls a try, go to houndstoothgamecalls.com, use the promo code SOP24. Again, promo code SOP24 for 15% off houndtoothgamecalls.com. Man, you're speaking my love language over here. Uh, <laughs> like, I mean, that's that, that's how I hunt 100% of yeah. the time, pretty much. Like, I love thickets. I love hunting on the ground. But, I'm a, so this is what I, what I saw. At, so, I, I've been in one hunting club, you know, that I... I, you know, paid dues for, and that was when I was like 26 years old and I was only in it for one season before I conveniently got kicked out, um, or or didn't have like, they didn't have like a membership the next year, you know, because like, you know, somebody may have killed one buck, but Michael killed all their bucks. I I tagged out and put my dad and his friend on, on bucks, but it's because of the way that they were hunting. They weren't hunting, you know, they were hunting, you know, the pretty timber. So, yeah, but one problem that we ran into over there on that piece of property. So all of ours ended up getting cut pretty much besides those Mm -hmm. SMZs, like I was talking about earlier. Yeah. But the surrounding Mm -hmm. properties were full of, you know, white Oaks. So in the fall, which we were big deer hunters, never been like much of a bird hunter, didn't care about Turkey. So 
all of the deer were being drawn off. By of, the way, shame on you for not caring about turkeys. Yeah. <laughs> so, so they were so they were being drawn off of the property in the fall, and a lot of those deer were going and feeding on their property, even though they were bedding on ours. And yeah. that posed a real issue for a lot of the hunters in the club, and that's the reason why they couldn't get on those, you know, deer. Mm-hmm. At, when I was, you know, at, at the later parts after they'd cut everything, and so. It, do you do you have any advice? Like, would you ever like, for instance, would you ever like really like just create create like a barren exterior around your property to where they won't go into the hardwoods during daylight because it's so wide open, just to prevent like some of those deer maybe from you know getting killed, or or, or is there anything like? that you would do to prevent like a lot of your deer being killed on the other property because yeah. that's where the food was in the fall, the preferred food source. Yeah. 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 That's a great question. Um, I don't know if I had the answer that you're wanting to hear, but I, I recommend this to clients a lot because as you would imagine, each, each property that I visit has the worst poachers I've ever seen and the worst neighbors, uh, that, that kill all the big deer you know pretty much we all we all have that problem and i call it the what if game and and i really i dealt with this a lot in my and not even that long ago on my farm of playing the what if game what if the deer beds on me but he goes to the neighbor what if he's moving during daylight and he does go to the neighbor what if the neighbor is hunting that day? What if the neighbor is hunting that day on the appropriate wind? What if he makes the shot and actually hits the deer? You, you see where I'm going? There's a lot of what ifs to make that happen. And all of a sudden, I'm more concerned about things that go on on my property and not what's going on. Or I'm, I'm worried about things that are going on on the neighbor's property and not what's going on on my property. And it almost it, it, then you, you lose out on the enjoyment side of that. Now, this is where I come into and I say, okay, what can we do to make this better? And and it could be I'm a huge advocate for boundary roads, for roads around the perimeter of properties, um, and, and as well as interior roads. But, you know, I'm a, I love families getting involved on property. So a big part of what we do is if they have boundary roads and the, and the families on the property, they're riding those boundary roads throughout the year with their forward to where deer just like, good gosh, there's a lot of activity over there. So that's one aspect that helps it. The other one being, okay, it's a little bit harder with oaks because you can plant an oak and it's going to take a while to really be a, a quality food source. And don't you dare tell me sawtooth. Yeah, that's a whole nother podcast. <laughs> but um, I, would, I would try to lean in on something else and other oaks, but try to find another food source, whether that be different types of fruit trees, uh, uh, food plots. It could be simple clover plots in road ditches or, or, or sides of skitter trails. Something. Because you have the bedding. And and that's the daylight activity. And, and so if you just hold up your arms shoulder width apart and stick your hands out and you say, okay, the area between my hands is daylight? That's, that's, bed, that's when they're bedded most of the time. The area outside of that is, is nighttime activity. That's when they can go wherever. During the day, they're on me for the most part. Then, then all I have to do is try to stick them to in between my hands and stick them in, on my property during daylight hours. So it may be 
I densen up those areas. I make them a little thicker. And one thing I wanted to add to that other, uh, to my last little rant was adding other shrubs. Try to identify shrubs that are native to that area that I can grow pretty quickly. Maybe it be black elderberry. Maybe it be beautyberry. Maybe it be American plum. Um, different types of shrubs to thicken it up. And then you can ultimately add those areas where the research done, uh, Auburn University was found that basically deer moved much slower around dense cover. Well, deer that move much slower closer to the bedroom have a less chance of making it to the neighbor during daylight. So I would improve the thick areas, try to really suck them and hold them tight on you, give them a couple of food sources that they'll hit before dark. And then after that, that's just that's just a wild animal. If they choose to go over there, that's that's it. But I'll do everything in my power from taking it up, adding different food sources, food varieties, and just, you know, maybe even a little prayer to keep them on my place. So, oh, listen, Michael is beyond excited on this episode. I'm pretty I'm pretty excited for Michael because, listen, some of the guys, we'll have some killers on my podcast, and Michael's like, oh, you know, I've got maybe a couple questions. He's just sitting there, and he's, he's just pretty fired up on this conversation here, which, did you have something you want? Because I've got something I want to go back to, like, his – yeah, yeah. Statement before I have a, another thing. Okay. Um, something that was recently introduced to Alabama was uh, they legalized baiting. And I didn't know if you had an opinion on this, um, especially in some of these thicker, more dense areas, if, you know, you set up anything like that, you know, I guess to maybe... What's your take on bait stations yeah. in areas that are extremely Good thick? Good gosh. What, in, in areas... Yeah, what, about, you want to talk politics, too? Democrats, Republicans. <laughs> I feel like to my Alabama friends and Mississippi friends, it was nice seeing you guys, but I'll probably never be coming back. Yeah, um, you guys are gonna get me. You know, this is like setting me up for the the, the uh, there's pitchforks and torches hey, headed my way hey, as soon as I answer this. The the noose is already tied for you, so I'll let you proceed. I mean, I, I have my own own opinion on uh, baiting. No, well, listen. Uh, let me say this. Also, with the baiting, okay. I'll just with this aspect, uh, Adam, when you answer this is. You know, especially from the guys, maybe like in a club where it's a lot of, say, like just denser ponds or something like that, and they think the easiest food source they can put into an area is just throw out some corn, rice bran, whatever, mm-hmm. in on the edge of that thicket to try to kill that buck. So what what's your take on that, like what yeah. Michael's saying? Yeah, so ultimately, I think it, it all depends on the personal behavior of that specific buck. Um, I think we'd all be aware that it's going to be a little bit more difficult to kill a mature deer uh, on a bait station on a feeder but if your neighbors are baiting and you're not they do have a leg up on you so first off i would be trying to identify you know is is this specific buck the one i'm targeting is he is he visiting bait bait stations during daylight hours you know he's doing it in the summer but as he's as he sheds velvet it all of a sudden he's vanished because if that's the case then i'm going okay i i i'm going to kill him somewhere else but if I can hold him on the place because of baiting, you know, it's 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 not one of those things in an ideal world that, yeah, we're all baiting, yeah, great. But if it's legalized and the neighbors are doing it, you kind of have to do it. You're kind of forced to do it. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Like, that was kind of my uh, view on it. Um, before it was actually legalized, uh, we could see that the property next to us was actually baiting when they weren't supposed to. We noticed our, our does weren't there, especially like around the rut. And, yeah. uh, and so people don't it, do that, right? 
Yeah. So, so, uh, so it, it drew a lot of our, our deer off when we weren't baiting, but you know, my dad's in that club. And so that's the issue he was dealing with. But then once baiting was legalized, you know, people were setting up bait stations on their property. And I told him like, if you're wanting to kill a buck, I, w- I would completely avoid where everybody is, you know, hunting and putting their bait stations at just because the amount of activity in those areas that most of the time, unless they're on like a, a food plot, which I would say nine times out of 10, you're not going to get a mature buck going to that in daylight anyways. But some of them were putting them in more thicker areas. And, um, and I told him to just stay away from those in general, just because mm-hmm. of the amount of activity, because it's usually a more dense cover. And I don't think that the deer tolerate that near as much as in the areas that are more open, like on a greenfield. So, yeah, I would probably, if it was me personally, I would have the feeders, but I wouldn't have them, like you said, tucked right up next to my dense areas. I might have them a little bit off and I probably wouldn't even have them on food plots. I'd have food plots. I'd have a bait station. Well, I almost cringe a little bit even saying that just because it sounds just, I don't know, maybe I'm a purist when it comes to that, but, um, and then at the same time, then I'd have my dense areas that, that, I, that I would hunt and not really jack with the other stuff, me personally. Yeah. As long as Alabama hunter said, you know, it's, you know, acorns may not, may or may not always be dropping every year, but those golden nuggets always are. So. Well, I'll tell you this. That's right. It seems like once everybody started baiting, I think a lot of people's opinions on that changed, at least from reading Facebook comments, because people were realizing that, you know, all of these bait stations were getting more activity. They were going, you know, to them over and over again, putting out this corn, really keeping them baited up. And they realized that they stopped seeing, you know, a lot of that buck activity, at least in daylight, because they could go there at night and feed on that corn. And also the scent check as well. Actually, the listener success story I just recorded, which will come out tomorrow. So this episode will come out Monday, but this so the past week's listener success story, uh, the guys from Louisiana, that's what he was dealing with. This 165, 170-inch deer he killed uh, was in an area on a club where they had tons of bait stations, very little food plots, and that buck was bouncing from food plot to, or uh, bait station to bait station at night feeding, but also checking for does. Um, and he just happened to kill it, you know, off, you know, off an area, uh, you know, next to a bait station that he had out, uh, but catching kind of slipping through, you know, leaving that bait station. So, um, you know, it is interesting when you have, you know, these States where baiting is legal and how that can play a factor and, and also be a crutch for somebody that doesn't want to put the effort in for quality habitat, especially when they own the actual property. Um, because that, you know, it's a question It probably won't even be worth, you know, really talking about, but like, you know, there's no substitute for quality habitat with this bait because that's only going to help deer and, and fatten raccoons up and feed crows and all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. so, so, you know, there, there's only so much that that can really do for you when it comes to, you know, actually feeding a herd. Um, but you, you brought up something that I wanted to just go back to uh, on, you, you said it was one of your, your last rant, but dude, rants are made for podcasts. I mean, dude, you, you're made for podcasts. So clearly that's why y'all have a show too. Uh, not only do you have the knowledge, but you gotta have the person, <laughs> you, you yeah. gotta have the personality to do it and, and like to talk. Uh, which is always a benefit as myself, you know, uh, Andrew jokes me because I like to hear myself talk. That's why I have my mics or my headphones by far the loudest out of all three of us in the room. <clears throat> but, um, Oh, that's funny. When, when it comes to, you were talking about these thick areas and opening up what you call like wildlife openings out in like around these thick areas where you may go through with a brush hog, not even playing a food plot, but just open an, open an area up almost like a little meadow uh, to kind of draw uh-huh. those deer there. And what came to my mind is we've had some guests on the on the podcast 
who specialize in running mock scrapes in very, very thick cover and have a tremendous success killing really big deer on mock scrapes in the South, but also in other parts of the country in these thick areas, in these little openings where they put a mock scrape in. Um, yeah. Where it's an area these bucks are super comfortable moving during daylight. There's plenty of cover. They don't ever feel like they're exposed, but they're able to get just to the edge of it, just inside that thick cover, climb a tree and see, you know, 30 yards farther into it where that mock scrape set up. And your wildlife yeah. openings to me sounds like an excellent location. If you if you set this spot up, especially with access in entry and exit in mind, and put you a, a proper mock scrape in one of these little wildlife openings where it's not really a food plot, it's just an opening inside this really dense cover. I see that as an excellent ambush point, dude. Especially if you have a November rut, late October killing a really nice buck coming in there checking that scrape. Yeah. I mean I've done it personally, so that's why I advocate it a lot. Um, and, and, you know, what is wildlife opening? Ultimately what I'm viewing it as and recommending it to be is not, do not think food plot. That is a food plot and a wildlife opening are two totally different things. Um, they're, they're not the same thing. A wildlife opening is very low maintenance. Maybe you manage it with a disturbance every three years and that may be fire or that may be disking during the dormant season but ultimately what i want this little opening to be is no bigger than a, a quarter of an acre or a third of an acre it can't not bigger than that i mean so small that the deer feels comfortable in it and i'm disking it up and I, or i'm promoting you know common ragweed may be waist high or three and a half four foot tall it may be uh, different types of forbs, early secession. It may be some blackberries kind of in it. It may be a little clump of broom sedge here and there or um, you know, wing stem if I'm down a low area. It may just be some pokeweed even, partridge pea, all these different little natives that grow up. That's what I'm looking for because I want that to be forage but also kind of a comfort aspect of it. And then, yeah, like you said, a mock scrape, a nice big communi community scrape or a scrape that just gets worked a lot. And by the way, this is excellent camera location. Uh, I mean, that's something I would, I'd really love to have as a camera location right there. Take it one step further and say, you know what? Why don't we take daddy's, or I guess down in the south we say papa's uh, tractor in there with a, with a front loader on his on his tractor and scoop out a little I don't know kitty pool size water hole and try to get a little water hole in there as well and now I've got water I've got a scrape and I've got this just this little open loafing area if you will I, guys this is dynamite these are these are things that that I love to design because guess what it doesn't cost me much it's not like a food plot that I'm looking at soil tests going what do we got to do to get this? Oh, by the way, the soil is great, but you've got too many deer. Move on. Um, this is just a low-maintenance area that is, I mean, if I got invited to hunt properties and you put me on a food plot knowing you had wildlife openings like I just described, I'm bummed out because I don't get to hunt the wildlife opening. And see, this is something that I'm glad we're talking about because this seems like a perfect project for somebody to be working on right now. Like they've got a little property. I mean, I'm thinking about our fa our family farm. I've got a couple areas in mind automatically that I'm like, this would be an excellent practice in a couple spots. And I might try to talk to my uncle about doing that, breaking out the tractor and the brush hog to go open a couple areas up like this. Um, but it seems very easy if, oh. if they have the equipment to be able to go do this right now. Yeah, it could be a chainsaw, 
leaf blower, scratch out a little fire break around it, burn it up. The other thing, too, that this is incredibly important for is brood-rearing habitat for turkey poults and quail chicks. If Because I want a lot of insects, a lot of bare ground. That's where the disking comes in. Insects are coming in because of the early successional plants. And then they're also producing seeds like ragweed seed or partridge pea seed that is phenomenal winter during the or food during the fall and winter for those for those quail and turkeys. So it's not just beneficial. This is one thing where yes, what's good for the herd is good for the bird aspects. This type of stuff is is definitely that. And then by the way, those little water holes I talked about, I could send you guys some pictures. But we put in little water holes about the size of a swimming pool, maybe ten yards across, ten yard you know perfect little circle. And I thought we would see way more deer on it. We're seeing way more turkeys hit them. So it could be another little strategy in your turkey hunting as well. Yeah. And again, I, I just see that would be something that, again, just I'm looking for simple, easy management practices that guys can be doing right now. And I feel like that was a, a perfect one because, and also when it comes to burning, a small area like that where you're looking like a quarter acre, maybe a third of an acre. Something like that would be a lot more manageable for somebody, especially as they're kind of learning how to do some of these practices instead of having to try to burn, you know, multiple acres at a time. Uh, so about, yeah. that would be like really good practice for somebody, but also, again, focusing on some of these areas, having good entrance and exit routes and planning ahead like, hey, you got a couple good trees you want to put a stand in and have one of these wildlife openings, you know, just adjacent to it where you can get in real clean and easy and watch one of those areas and get a mock scrape set up. I just It sounds dynamite. Yeah. You, you you can burn it, Jacob, that little third acre. For a pyro like me, it doesn't sound that exciting, but go crazy. I think this would be an excellent solution to what we were talking about earlier, too, is for like some of these older people maybe that are in these clubs, you know, they have these big, you know, vast thickets that they don't want to set up on the ground. You know, they would rather, you know, get in a, you know, climber or something like that. A lot of these properties do still have mature trees somewhere and a lot of these properties would set up to where you could actually climb high and you could actually look over into these uh, thickets you could have that barrier so the deer feel safe in there you don't ever have to go in there and you can get them from an elevated you know position no doubt i, I think when people say there's no big trees i think of clear cuts i'm like there's always trees most times there's a 10% of the area has trees on it. They're just dotted across the landscape. So if you can find the one that you can get into and have that thicket 50 yards out in front of you and hunt downwind side, I mean, ultimately you're, you're hunting with your nose. Um, you're going to, you're going to hunt with the wind blowing across that, across the wildlife opening and then to you. So everything is in, you know, those hunts where you're like, everything lines up perfectly for me and everything's against him. Well, you're not going to kill him to your buck when everything's against him. You're going to kill him when it's everything's in his favor and you're just flirt, flirting with the line of being totally a bust for you. And that's where these little openings, I mean, the wind's coming off the bedding area and it's blowing across and you're just sticking your nose in there. It's perfect for you. So I was, I was thinking earlier, like, these these areas are a lot like those uh, seed trees that you're talking about. Like when they when they you know go ahead and they cut a big area and they leave these seed trees. These wildlife openings are very very similar to these seed trees that they leave because it's almost like the deer are drawn to those areas. Um, you know, just I, I don't know why, but they always seem to like go from tree to tree. 
And I see the same thing with a lot of these wildlife openings that you're talking about is it's almost like, it's just different. It's just, it's different than, you know, these, all of these pines. And so it's like they're drawn in there. No doubt. And, and it could just be that there's resource, a change in resources. Yeah. And Adam, one thing I was going to bring up is uh, when you, you brought that terminology, like what a wildlife opening is, we're actually familiar with that because there's places on public land that we hunt like natural wildlife openings and that have been extremely successful, especially for Andrew. But also, like you said, they're excellent places to run trail cameras in these thickets where you have an, a, you know, they could be, you know, like you said, a, it could be a small opening where it might be like an eighth of an acre, like just real small. And you might have a bigger opening, it might be closer to half an acre in some of these areas. And there's for some reason, all the deer want to cross through there and it's a great ambush point for you, great place to put mock scrapes, all nine yards. So just now looking at it and be able to mainly manipulate your own property to add wildlife openings in and around that thick security cover where you have good entrance routes, good exit routes. You know, if you have a good tree to climb, perfect. If you got to put a freaking, uh, you know, a tower, if you got to put a tripod stand, whatever, to get elevated where you can see down into it, or even a grand blind set where you can just like get right up to the edge and then get through the backside of the blind and then look out into that little opening. Uh, I just mm-hmm. see just super, super effective. And I think for a Southerner, again, that's, of all the things we talked about, that's been the one thing that I've extremely, I mean, that's what got Michael fired up. That got me fired up too, because I'm just looking at it from our property perspective. That would be super easy to go in there and do. Like you said, chainsaw, brush hog, you know, run a fire through it, the whole nine yards. But it's small, but you could do multiple of those on a property uh, to give you different options. And again, great place to run trail cameras, great place to put a cell camera out and just see how that area develops throughout the season, especially as those forbs come in and the whole nine yards. But it brings up one question I want to bring up, which maybe it's for you to explain or just kind of better explain for us what the why this method's used. You're, you've talked a few times on this podcast about disking, surface disking in the wintertime. Yeah. Can you talk about yeah. what is the advantage of that? Why do that? Why would you do that? And, and what is that kind of promoting? Yeah, during that time of the year, um, you're promoting the growth of specifically common ragweed is a big one. Dormant season disking promotes more of a four base. So you can get common ragweed and other partridge pea, different species, if you're disking during the summer months, you're basically growing, you're in the middle of growing season. And so you're ultimately, you, it could be, you name it. We don't know what's going to come up, but we have a pretty good idea if you have common ragweed abundant in the area that dormant season disking is going to allow for that um, common ragweed to respond and begin growing in the next year. Um, the, at the same time, it's just, you're not having to deal with like I said, thick growth. So if you could possibly do it, but if you have, say, Cerisa lespedeza, another one of my all-time least favorite species, not uh, an invasive, and if it's on the landscape and all of a sudden you're disking during the growing season, there's a chance you, you get a whole lot of Cerisa lespedeza back, or it could be Johnson grass. So it's just a, a good time of the year to promote common ragweed. So... When we're talking about uh, disking stuff up or burning anything like, and uh, to bring back those native plants like like ragweed or partridge pea or anything like that, uh, yeah. can you explain to people like you're not actually planting those those plants? No. They're, they're in the seed bank. So you can can you kind of explain the seed bank and kind yeah. of the thought behind that? Yeah, 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 and and it, yeah, for sure. Um, good point. Um, when it comes to the native seed bank, a lot of these species are here. They're just laying in the seed bank ready to to grow 
And it could be, you know, some of these species over 100 years can just lay there, just waiting for the right conditions. And the right conditions may be get up to the surface, just at the right height, close to the surface, and get adequate moisture, adequate sunlight, and start growing. But it could have been six months off when it reached the soil surface, and there was another plant growing, and it didn't get the right sunlight, so it didn't grow. And so there's tons of seeds just laying in the seed bank. Now, the flip side of that is if it's been a cornfield or, or a crop field for years and years and years, the seed bank is not there because it's been sprayed out with herbicide and, and land use. So if it is a clear-cut area, though, you have a very good chance of having those species in the seed bank, and all you really need to do is just disc it up or even open it up with sunlight. But in a lot of the places down south, just opening the ground means you're going to get a lot of broom sedge. Yeah, and that, that's something that we very, very commonly see in a lot of cutovers here, and yeah. even some natural openings like what Jacob was mentioning, which we'll talk about on the outro. I've had excellent success hunting natural openings, uh, like wildlife openings yeah. like you're talking about and cutovers. But we get a lot of that broom sage and stuff like that, um, which, I mean, I guess isn't necessarily the, the best thing for deer. I mean, can you kind of explain that, that plant and, I don't know, kind yeah. of its benefits and, and maybe some detriments of it? Broom sage, sage grass, a lot of people call it, or broom sedge, um, is is a product of basically land use. A lot of guys will say, and it, there's some truth to it, that it, it, it shows acidic soil. But it could also show mismanagement. It could show uh, routine maintenance at a certain period of time. Uh, what, what people are seeing in the south with broom sedge is... Pines aren't getting managed with fire nearly as much as they used to. They're getting managed more with herbicide use. So a lot of those other species that would generally grow are getting killed with herbicide. And so, and broom sedge has been relatively unaffected by that herbicide. So it's ultimately, we're, we're kind of, because of the herbicide use, we're opening it up saying pines, broom sedge. That's kind of what we're working with now. And because it's kind of gotten its foot in the door, and it's gone to seed, and the herbicide continues to be the same. Now we're just seeing an overabundance of broom sedge in the south. Now, it's not a grass. It's a sedge. But deer, I mean, if deer is eating broom sedge, they are starving. They're very, very hungry, and there could be a better food source available. Not to say they won't eat it. I've had to eat crow before and saying I don't see deer eat fescue, and then my brother went and shot a 160-inch buck that had fescue in his throat. Um, that was and that was something, but he was also 120 pounds scrawny and starving. So, um, you know, a starving deer will eat almost anything, but that's what broom sedge is. It's okay cover, but terrible food. Okay. So I, I want to talk from, uh, talk about broom sage through, uh, the aspect of say like a, a turkey slash quail hunters perspective or just a, or a manager. What what does broom sage offer, if anything, to your bird species when it comes to nesting, uh, the pulse chicks, the whole nine yards? Like, is there any advantage to it other than just giving just overhead cover? I mean, what, what is your take on nest, that? Nesting cover, nesting cover. Um, it's 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 phenomenal nesting cover, but it can be too thick, and so um, ultimately, if if you're looking at a take a thirty yard circle. And you're seeing over 50% being broom sedge, you need to change that. And it could be um, changing it because you go in and you, you mow it down and you run a dormant season disc through there and you promote those forbs. 
or you send a growing season fire through that little opening uh, and it just but if you're seeing it dominating the area you need to change up the, the management uh, or introduce fire uh, and so that's that's really it's it's good cover but you know I don't want the entire landscape being dominated by it which is interesting because a uh, majority of our cutovers or select cuts, when there's sunlight hits the ground, that is the first thing to pop up and, and grow yeah. the broom sage. Uh, which from a deer hunter's perspective, it seems like the like they're hard, it's hard to shoot a deer in that stuff. Gun, bow, it doesn't matter because they, they blend in so well, especially when it gets real tall. Uh, but I've killed yeah. two bucks in two years in an area like that. And it just seems like all the cutovers, anytime you have openings, it, it, that stuff grows. But yeah. from a bird hunter's perspective, because I'm, I'm quick, I'm, I'm, quickly becoming got bit by the bug yeah more focused on now quail and woodcock and all these and of course wild turkey too um yeah but for like quail habitat that's not a great thing is having just excessive broom i'm gonna send you some photos and just get your like professional opinion on it but i'm talking like imagine a a hundred acre clear cut that is you know there's pine trees that are now you know two foot tall maybe and then it's just broom sage like chin high Super dense, like there's no, yeah, there's hardly any room between like the bunches of it on the ground. Are you killing any quail out of it? No, but we jump woodcock in it, a, a, actually, a yeah. decent bit. Um, especially I like much, before daylight. Okay, I, I, my, my professional opinion, heck, my, my just good old boy opinion of broom sedge and quail is it could give us the impression of being great. But it can also, if without fire, it can get pretty doggone thick. Now, think about, like, if if a, you think quail, yeah, it's great for quail, but they're, they're a pretty clumsy bird. If you've ever watched quail run, they're, they're pretty stinking clumsy. And a big old belly on them and little bitty old feet that kind of run back behind them. They, they, they just don't maneuver through the landscape very well. So if you're seeing broom sedge it almost blankets the ground with its clumps they can't really get through that too well so i would introduce fire and probably especially if you're seeing it chin high try to get it in a much more uh routine basis a one to two year cycle to try to open it up the the big thing that i think many people miss on quail is is the woody escape cover component so you can have all the grass in the world and all the forbs, but during the fall and winter, you really need that woody escape cover component. And that could be blackberry patches. It could be plum thickets. Um, it could be even uh, beautyberry patches down south. You need a woody structure uh, in and around those grassy areas to be that, that cover component because grass is not going to protect them from uh, raptors or hawks. Um, from from above you need more woody structure so that would be i guess my opinion is is try to not be so thick in broom sedge i would rather see more forbs and i'd rather see some some brambles or woody woody escape cover mixed in that's interesting i didn't realize i didn't really think about the whole like added woody i mean this this is coming from a I'm just now becoming focused on quail with the last two weeks <laughs> so um, yeah so i'm just quickly tr- trying to learn some stuff um you're in for it you know that right yeah well we yeah well we get wild populations of of quail and some different public lands that we hunt so we're trying to target them there but um it's just more finding that the areas they're wanting to get into and i didn't think about the the adding the woody 
like woody uh, stem cover in and around that more kind of grassy area to give them more cover yeah. in the winter times. I, I, I didn't think about that, but it makes a lot of sense, especially in areas that were, I mean, sometimes you just find them, you're like, why are they in this spot? But that, that makes a lot more sense. So, yeah. Yeah. I may be throwing you under the bus here. I've like done it twice already, but um, <clears throat> it, I hear, I don't, I don't turkey hunt. But I, I hear a lot of people really, really grappling on the pages about burns and the turkey population. And I'm so that happy spring. you brought this up. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'm saying that with all seriousness. I'm yeah. so happy you brought it up. Okay. Yeah, I just want so to talk griping. about it. Can I, can I just ask, they're griping saying that the government and the state forest or the national forest are burning up all the turkey nests. Is yeah, that what you're going to yeah. ask? Yeah, okay. That's what I always say. I want you to I want you to break it down like this, or think about it like this. Do you have any numbers for me? Ballpark me, Alabama, and I and I actually was prepared a little bit for this, but I didn't write down the numbers. But what is the percentage of state or federally owned land in Alabama? Three percent. I'm almost positive it's three percent. This sounds like okay. the Dave Owens uh, oh, numbers yeah. that he oh, put yeah. out. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Did, did did when did Dave do this? Uh, Dave made a post about this uh, probably a couple maybe a month or two ago, uh, which is on this. Uh, top. I, po- I I posted this on his page. I don't know a month and a half ago. Okay, well that's uh, he might have shared it then, but I mean, but yeah, so three okay. percent of Alabama is is uh is you know public land. So yes, and I and I give props to my brother on this because my brother did this in Arkansas where he was working for the U.S. Forest Service at the time, and he told me this number, and we started breaking it down per state. So if 3%, I don't know about you guys, but let's just say you're, a, you're in marketing and you're selling cars and a random dude flies in from California to buy uh, a car off your car lot and he ends up being 3% of your buying pool, do you spend many marketing dollars to go advertise to California buyers? No, it's 3%. It's nothing. But that's not all. If you say 3%, okay, let's just say that adds up to, I don't know what that ends up being, ten, less than 10,000 acres maybe? Only on, in an ideal world, in a perfect world, about a third of that would get burned a year. So we went from 3% down to a third of that actually getting burned. Guys, if, if that's what we're depending on, if we're depending on that landscape to make enough birds to then be our bird factory to populate, we're screwed from the start. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, it's, and you can do that from, from Alabama to Georgia to South Carolina. Anywhere in the southeast is made up mainly of private land. So this is it's it's not about burning up nests. Yeah, there's a few nests that will get burned up. But What's best for the species is not what always is what always is best for the individual. So if you're burning up a nest on on you're burning up one nest, well that that individual that hen or that nest is saying burning's terrible, but the other ones that were successful because of that fire are saying, I we needed that fire to make this successful because this is where we raised our broods. Like this is a habitat issue. It's not a this is not a we're burning up nests issue. So you're kind of saying like, uh, even though you're, you know, one season might 
you know, you might have some nests get burned up. It's the following seasons that are really benefiting from. Or, or later that, that, that very year that they could be benefiting. And it may not be, think about it like this, a nest may have been burned up, but the nests that were successfully hatched in the adjoining acreage can now use that burn to raise their broods because that is excellent brood rearing cover. You follow me? Nesting cover and brood rearing where they're raising their actual mobile chicks are two different things. And they could be the difference between last year's burn unit and this year's burn unit. Now, let me ask, just while we're talking about prescribed fires here, and this time of the year, again, back, you know, on the topic of, you know, what are some things landowners can be focusing on now for, you know, embetterment their property, really focusing on, you know, increasing quality habitat and getting ready for not only, you know, spring turkey season, but also, you know, brooding cover and fawning cover um, in the spring and summer months and then getting ready for the fall. When it comes to doing prescribed fires on properties, you know, what is advice that you have for people that are interested in looking at? I mean, would you have people contact their state agencies for assistance? Yeah, absolutely. A lot of state agencies do prescribed fire uh, schools or workshops. I know the Mississippi does it, state of Missouri does it, Arkansas does it. Contact Quail Forever, Pheasants Forever, um, people in your region, if you have them, look into your state agencies, NRCS. Some are good, some are bad. Um, as far as you know, they're going to be active, proactive in, in helping landowners understand the use of fire and then training them. Um, but there are a lot of states that are offering those services. It's just people aren't really aware of it. Yeah, no, I think that's that's one thing that, uh, like you said, I think people aren't aware of it. So they hear about, oh, man, just go. You know, there's so many different people out there promoting prescribed, you know, pr- promoting fire use uh, for managing property, which is, you know, it's a, it's a great thing when done correctly and, and, you know, done, you know, with right intentions. But then again, you know, fire is fire. You know, if fire is important on the landscape, especially in the deep south, like it's just it's, it's part of the natural landscape. It should be done. Uh, and that's something mm-hmm. that's been missing for a long time in a lot of areas. You know, unfortunately, you know, some areas that we hunt, uh, just because it's it's owned by timber companies, there is no prescribed fires. Uh, the, the, yeah. the timber company just won't allow it. They won't do it. Uh, which, you know, if they did do it, oh my gosh, the deer hunt. Oh, dude, it'd be, oh man, it'd be so good. It'd be, I mean, it's already great, but it would be on another level. Uh, but in some other pieces of public land, they're more... Um, you know, some managed, you know, federally managed, and then also some that are state managed, uh, have much more of a, a fire, um, ha- have a lot more of a fire management strategy uh, for yearly burns and everything in, through different sections. Um, and I'll say this when you hunt a property that's been burned, it's kind of weird the first couple of times if you're not used to it, like especially if you just burn certain sections, like that fast growing stage you know just within a few weeks after that burn especially you do something in springtime and just how quickly it changes throughout that year it's kind of amazing to see and see how the deer and turkey and everything else use that habitat as it progresses and then you see it in the second year of or second stage of, of growth that following year and just seeing how it changes where you know some of those little smaller saplings and everything changes the cover changes in height um, and it just adds so much benefit you know when you're looking just a couple years down the road to depending on whether you're managing it for strictly this deer or again for like all species. Yeah. It's kind of funny how God would design it that way. Right. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, it, well, it's also like, I think it's just, as for a lot of people, it's this, 
they'll, the word they look at, like, man, it's just the fire. Like, you know, I'd love to do prescribed fires, but it's just the word. But I think if they reach out to their state agencies, talk to people that are more specialists on it and see if they can get, you know, some one of those agencies to come out and actually do the fire. Um, I think it would mm-hmm. give a lot more people more confidence on, on actually doing that on their own properties. Uh, a thousand percent. You know, the Smokey the Bear campaign um, was a good campaign, but it's caused people to, to, to believe that all fire was bad. Um, I actually had an old state employee that told me one time the best thing we could ever did for habitat was take Smokey and throw him in the fire because it scared, it caused people to be so scared of burning. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, yeah. that's kind of, you know, especially my, my parents' generation, uh, it's very much ingrained with them, like my uncles and everybody else. It's just like, you know, they look at fire and he's done, he's done prescribed fires on, on the family farm, uh, I don't know, five, six times over the last 10 years. Uh, yeah, but it, it's still one of those things like when you, when you're doing it, other landowners that aren't used to prescribed fires, they're like, Oh my God, the woods are on fire. And like, yeah, it's, uh, a, thousand percent. and it's a lot about communication between landowners around you. Like, Hey, this is my goal. This is my practice. This is what I'm planning on doing certain things. So they're fully aware of what to expect when you're actually running these fires and not freaking out when there's a little bit of smoke in the air. Yeah. Guys, as deer hunters, turkey hunters, uh, even quail hunters, but they're, they have a little bit better, uh, image than we have as deer hunters, especially deer hunters should take and fire their communications manager with the, the, in, in regards to their communications to the general public. We're terrible at it. We do not advocate, um, correctly for what we are doing on the landscape. We should educate ourselves. And it's not really that hard. Even a caveman like myself has, turned it into a career of educating myself on land management and helping teach other people about it. So it's not that hard, but we should be changing our communications to the public. And fire is not about, you know, if fire is not about, Oh, we're burning the farm up. Yeah. we got to burn up, burn the brush back. No, it's about restoring a native ecosystem. It's about improving and diversifying the farm. That's not only beneficial to the deer, but many other non-game species like, red cockaded woodpecker for you guys down south or the gopher tortoise over in the southeast a little further east of you guys or um uh whatever whatever other species for me summer tanagers is a is a big one for me uh we're we're restoring a landscape that was native to this area and we need to be focused on on sharing that message not yeah we're doing all this stuff shoot bigger deer that is a huge plus but it's not it's not the, the, the messaging we should be doing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one, one last topic, by the way, uh, I'm going to let you know that that one topic that I wanted to cover, we're going to say that we're going to do another episode with you probably in a couple of weeks. Uh, maybe I, <laughs> well, sounds good. Well, I was, you're going to be at NWTF, right? No, and I will not. Matt, Matt, my business partner and my brother will be there. We, I, my wife and I have a, a child coming sometime this month. Well, hey, congratulations. Yeah, congratulations. Might have to talk yeah, to Matt. thanks, man. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, definitely, uh, I want to do that. Well, that. it won't be nearly as good. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we're going to do that topic with you again uh, in just a little while. But one one last thing I just want to touch on real quick is the perception of food plots when it comes to the hunting industry and also just what you see in the southeast, but really across the country, yeah. the emphasis on food plots. But again, not focusing on the quality habitat. Just what's your take on food plots, proper food plot management uh, when it comes mm-hmm. to also overall general, general uh, breakdowns of properties and your goals on that properties for management? Absolutely. If you heard me in, in at the beginning of the podcast, I explained 
the tail end of what we do is helping landowners reach their goals in the quickest amount of time possible with the least amount of money spent. And that is a really complex, you know, that's a simplified but a complex answer because ultimately when you when you look at a farm and the way I like to manage a farm is I look at it like a business. And I mentioned it with the with the public land burning all the nests. Like when you break it down numbers wise, the return on your investment um, should be considered in everything we do. And with food plots in particular, most farms, and I say that just casually, uh, uh, when we look at most farms, less than 10%, and generally it's less than 3% of the farm is actually in food plots. Um, and so, you know, most guys, I got 200 acres and five acres of food plots. Okay. Now, where do you spend your time in a year when it's not hunting season? Most of the time, it's on food plots. It's controlling weeds in food plots. It's on mineral or bait stations around food plots. It's trail cameras around food plots. You can quickly see why deer research has shown us that daylight activity of mature deer is not around food plots. Now, let me step back and say I love food plots, but I don't love them like the way everybody else loves them. I love them from a standpoint of providing additional forage, additional areas for other wildlife to use, and it helps with patterning um, movement on the farm. And so I love food plots, but my perspective of them is it's a management tool to help add additional acres of food and in smaller acreage and can help with the patternability of deer. Now, I feel like uh, I did a podcast that kind of sums up my thoughts really well on on food plots and, and a lot of the other common practices, and we called it 30 years to nowhere, meaning in 30 years, the hunting industry has promoted food plots, minerals, um, all kinds of other products, and where did we get in the last 30 years? Turkeys were much better 30 years ago. Deer, uh, they were okay, but we that we were killing good deer 30 years ago and it costs a lot less money um and the quail have almost completely vanished in many areas in 30 years so 30 years of the hunting industry telling us what to do has really gotten us nowhere and so food plots is kind of almost the staple child of the hunting industry and quote habitat management and that's where i wanted to get with with that is so many people put emphasis on food plots but they don't put emphasis on again, quality habitat around that food plot to actually hold deer and give deer other options than just your clover patch or whatever else you got growing. Um, a thousand percent. I'm a cover guy. I mean, I'm a huge advocate for quality cover, dense cover. Um, I say this all the time. You, you've driven by a pile of beautiful fields filled with food, 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 food. But you don't see deer all over them. But I'll bet you you walk into a little thicket and you're going to kick a deer out. Why is that? Because they key in on cover as survival more than they do food. They'll eat sticks and briars and vines in a thicket to survive. They won't go hightailing across a big field just because they want to eat it. 
Absolutely. And it's, it's all part of a managed strategy. And with any landowner figuring out, you know, what's the, the best ratio of food plots to also just overall cover on the property. And also having those Forbes and everything else out there, like those, like we talked about earlier, those wildlife openings, another way to yeah. promote those Forbes, uh, you know, in and around some thick quality cover. Uh, and then also having food plots around there as well. So it's everything like, you know, compiles on itself. But you don't need to rely on just one thing or another as your your total management strategy. Like a management strategy of just food plots to me is not a management strategy. Um, no, when it comes to our no, property. no, it's yeah, it's not really even doing much ultimately. It's um, it, you need to have a. I said this a couple weeks ago, but you ultimately you're not a one trick pony. You should not be a one trick pony. I can make the best food plots on the farm. You that's that's one tool. So you. You can be a tool or you can be a tool bag. And so let's just be tool bags and have many of tools to manage our farms that include all these different things that we've talked about on this podcast to really improve the farm for, for all the wildlife. All right, Adam, I got I to say this right now. I'll change tool bag to toolbox. There you go. Be a toolbox. There you go. Yeah. No. I said it kind of tongue in cheek. Like you know, <laughs> no, nobody no. wants to be a tool bag, but, but let's be tool bags. No, what, what a tool bag. Yeah, no, but no, but it's, <laughs> we talk about this on the podcast all the time. You know, when it comes to like woodsmanship and, and being become a better hunter and just a better woodsman, you got to have a bunch of tools in your toolbox, your tool bag, whatever you want to use, whatever you want to call it. And, and yeah. be able to handle a bunch of different situations and, and learn from that. You can't just be a one-trick pony because one-trick pony may work on one property. You go to another area and you could completely struggle because you don't have the woodsmanship and the skills to you know, find deer or, or be able to hunt and kill deer in a different habitat type that what you're used to. Um, and that's right. And also strategy, you know, from having, you know, a common stand to a lock on to a saddle to all these different things, all different tools that you can use to become a more effective hunter instead of just relying on one strategy. Same thing with the habitat management, same thing with your property management and your overall property uh, management plan when it comes to, you know, providing better quality habitat, cover, food, the whole nine yards for not just deer in your property, but the whole, you know, landscape of, of species that are living out there. Um, Absolutely. So hopefully the listeners got, you know, decent amount out of this episode. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I, listen, I saw Michael. Michael, at first, Michael, I don't think was super fired up about this topic. Like, oh, man, land management. I just want to talk about killing deer. But after talking about it, I think I think he got pretty jazzed up a little bit. You don't know me. You don't know me. <laughs> like, I mean, I would love to do land management, like seriously. Oh. Like just – it's just like a chess game. I mean, like you're just – you're creating something and there's different ways you can do it to – you know, have this certain outcome that you're looking for. And that's the kind of, the kind of thing I really like. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, ultimately you're setting a trap. It's like, you're, you're, you're really just going, okay, I want, you know, summer activity there. I want fall activity here because I have better access. You know, there's many, you're, it's a juggling thing. You're just trying to put all these things in the air and, and just figure it out. And, and that's the, that's the cool part about my job. Absolutely. Which speak about your job. Uh, I'll, of course, you got to plug the podcast again, Lane Legacy Podcast, uh, and then also y'all site. If if we have listeners out there that, of course, you know if they want to listen to you guys, I know you have hundreds of episodes. They can go and check that out. You know, on any major listening platform, just look at Lane and Legacy. But if they're interested in actually speaking uh, to you guys, uh, you or Matt on, you know, potentially coming and look at their property or, you know, putting together a management strategy plan, uh, you know, how would they go about getting contact with you all and checking out y'all's website? Yeah, you can search us at www.atlantalegacy.tv and 
you know, com was taken when we set that up, by the way. That's why it's there. But um, you can search us there and go to the consultation tab and shoot us uh, uh, inquiry there. Or you can just email us at info at landandlegacy.tv. Or you can email Matt. No, I'm kidding. I wouldn't do that to him. But um, Or you can just email <laughs> me directly. I, I don't care to share my email. It's adam at landandlegacy.tv. So you can email me there, and uh, we'd be happy to help. I mean, this is... This is what we do, guys. I mean, ultimately, we don't even get to hunt nearly as much as we used to or want to because we, we're traveling all over writing plans. And you know what they say, the cobbler's kids don't have shoes. So we, uh, we're so busy doing this that we don't even get to hunt a lot anymore, but it's all good. Absolutely. Well, uh, I, I wanted you to tell a story in this podcast, but we'll probably have to save it for the next one because uh, I want to. The next time we have you on, I want you to talk about what y'all have done in y'all's family farm uh, in Missouri, yeah. and went from you know just oak hickory, you know, pretty much desolate forest to in cattle farm to uh, killing a hundred ninety inch deer out there, and really doing a lot of awesome stuff on that property. If you have guys haven't, I'll share a quick part on that. If you haven't figured this out out already, I I. I I give people a pretty hard time and I, and I loved it. You know, that's the product of being a younger brother growing up in hunting camps of always being the young kid. Like I had to, I had to figure out how to send out zingers at other people just to keep the wolves at bay because they were constantly picking on me. And when I was a young man, when my brother and I were, we were teenagers, our farm used to just completely, it, you would not see deer. And my brother used to call it turns into the Mojab around here. It's like the Mojab desert. And it wasn't until years later that I was like, Mojave. Ah, no wonder I never heard other people talk about the Mojab desert. So we kind of laugh about that now. And we're like, you know what? We went to Mansfield, like a tiny little town, like, okay. Yeah. You know, that's States away, but that's now, now we have, you know, my brother and, and actually Matt, we're trying to shoot does during late season this year, muzzleloader the last part of December. And they both saw two, four and a half year old bucks that we've elected to make it to five and a half. Hopefully they will knock on wood. Um, they were seeing them during daylight. Um, brother saw them a couple times, um, during the last part of hunting season. So, you know, I think it speaks for itself. How many, you know, it's probably not pretty common to see four and a half year olds on their feet multiple days in a row during the latter part of hunt season. So I feel like we're heading in a pretty good direction. Absolutely. Yeah. It's crazy how things can change on a property just with, uh, you know, property management strategy and also, you know, having good relationships with, with neighbors. Uh, but Adam, again, we appreciate you coming on the podcast. Of course, you know, listeners, y'all can check out, you know, Adam Matt's work uh, when it comes to their podcast at Lane and Legacy. And just, you know, you can search it on Apple, Spotify, anywhere you listen to your podcast. And then also go to laneandlegacy.tv uh, for a look at consultations or anything else to uh, speak to these guys on uh, any questions y'all may have in regards to, um, you know, y'all's own land management strategy. So, Adam, thank you again for coming on the podcast, brother. And uh, hey, listen, uh, congratulations on the kid. And I know you're going to have a very busy spring, not only with work, but also a, a new one on the ground too. Oh, for sure. I appreciate it, guys. You know, early on you said uh, you talked about you've enjoyed watching from afar of our success, and I've enjoyed it as well watching you guys grow the podcast. So congrats to you guys, and uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. Thanks again, everybody, for tuning in to another episode of the Southern Outdoorsman, and thank you to Blackberry Smoke for the music for the podcast. Also, to follow along with us, make sure you check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And if you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash the Southern Outdoorsman. Until next time, y'all stay Southern.
you guys seem to really have enjoyed over the last year where we've went to a Q&A format every Thursday on the show where we answer some listener questions. Now, some of the most common ones that we get have to do with gear, but also how to find a good hunting buddy. You know, I'm really lucky to, to have a hunting buddy like Jacob. We've been on a lot of incredible hunting trips together over the years, and it's just nice to have somebody that, you know, is always down to go on that that trip that you've always wanted to go on or, or who will wake up at three o'clock in the morning and go get that gate before someone else does on public land with you, whatever the case may be. And like I said, we get a lot of questions on how do you find, you know, a group of people who enjoy that same thing so you can kind of network and make some connections. The Mobile Hunters Expo is the place to do that. Y'all heard us talk about it last year. And guess what? This year it's happening in Dalton, Georgia. We're going to be there June 28th through the 30th. We're going to be there all three days. We're going to have a booth. You can come talk to us. We talked to a lot of you guys last year, had a ton of fun. So looking forward to that again. But guys, I'm telling you, this is the place to come network. And there's going to be a ton of you guys there. A lot of Southern Outdoorsman podcast listeners are going to be at this show. And actually, Friday, June 28th, there's going to be an after-hour social after the expo. So what better place to go kind of intermingle, hang out with a bunch of like-minded people, and probably pick up a couple new hunting buddies. So you guys don't miss it. It's June 28th through the 30th. I'm telling you, if you listen to this podcast, this is an event you need to be at. Now, we'll see you guys at the Mobile Hunters Expo June 28th through the 30th in Dalton, Georgia.